This is Guns and Butter. Russia of 2014 is not the Russia of 2022. Russia of 2022 is a very different country than it was before eight years ago. Economically, it grew tremendously. And uh, it's in the open. Everybody knows the war is with the West. The conflict is with the West. And uh, persevere and to have a chance at winning this conflict, Russia needed the time and really slick uh, political maneuvering. At this stage, Russia decided to settle it once and for all. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Andrei Martyanov. Today's show, War in Ukraine, Geopolitical and Economic Fallout. Andrei Martyanov is an expert on Russian military and naval issues. He was born in Baku in the Soviet Union, graduated from the Kirov Naval Red Banner Academy, and served as an officer on the ships and staff position of the Soviet Coast Guard through 1990. He took part in the events in the Caucasus that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. In the mid-1990s, he moved to the United States, where he worked as the laboratory director in a commercial aerospace group. He is the author of Losing Military Supremacy, The Myopia of American Strategic Planning, The Real Revolution in Military Affairs, and his latest, Disintegration, Indicators of the Coming American Collapse. Andrei Martyanov, welcome back. Well, pleasure to be here. I can't wait to get your take on the war in the Ukraine. What are the main issues driving the Russian Federation's military intervention in Ukraine? How does President Putin present his case? Um. President Putin actually didn't have to do much to present this case because the Donbass republics, uh, LDNR as they are known, uh, have been on the receiving end of the shelling and uh, diversions and plain simple terrorist acts and political uh, uh, murders for the last eight years, since 2014, when Donbass rose in arms and defended its uh, basically Russian culture. And uh, in this particular case, it was clear that United States, and that went through Obama administration, because it was Obama administration, and the neocons in it, like Victoria Nuland and the Kagan uh, clan, you know, who planned this? They wanted this ram, or the needle, if you wish, uh, into the Russians, uh, Russian uh, back, or, you know, the side, if you want. And eventually, to, to be used against Russia, and eventually getting Ukraine into NATO and the uh, positioning there, deploying there a bunch of the military bases. And you have to recall also that Russians forestalled that with uh, Crimea operation, because Crimea was one of the targets of that. And since then, it never stopped. And uh, for eight years, everybody knew it was the bleeding wound and that something will happen again. And once uh, Trump had been thrown out of the office and basically same people came back to the White House and State Department. And uh, so you have this, 
they understood that the United States was declining and declining rather, uh, you know, uh, really fast, honestly. And uh, Ukraine was the kind of last uh, asset which you could have traded with Russia or bargain if you wish. And they wanted Russia to spend Russia's resources there by means of getting rid of Ukraine. They were ready to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. And now in the uh, mid-February, their provocations and shelling became unsustainable, I mean, from the humanitarian point of view. We're not talking about war crimes, and that's the whole other story, because what was they are committing even today in Ukraine, it's just unbelievable. And then, of course, uh, Mr. Zelensky stated that he wants to get nuclear weapons, and that was it. LDNR republics, the Donbass republics, have been recognized, and they immediately, as recognized entities, by Russia requested the military assistance, and that was it. But as always, plan from Washington was pretty simple. Let's uh, get Russia involved in uh, Donbass purely. We can point to Russians and show the Europeans that there you are. You see those aggressive Ruskies, you know, who just doesn't want to communicate or bargain in whatever, you know, peaceful way. And that would open the uh, possibility, which did happen actually, to shut down the Nord Stream 2, uh, to beat Germany into utter submission and kind of rank and file and kind of gather all this Atlantic Brotherhood, NATO, under auspices of NATO, to provide, uh, so to speak, the final lunch for the American economy. You know, because everybody knows, uh, I mean, who have been into this uh, situation for the last several years, they know once the Nord Stream 2 is shut down, the chemical industry of Germany is going bankrupt. And after that automatically means that all manufacturing in Germany becomes absolutely uh, not just not profitable. It's going to it's going to be economic net loss. And that opens a lot of possibilities for the United States. That was the plan. Ukraine was the uh, sacrificial lamb. What nobody expected, and Russia again forestalled it, is that Russia decided to go all in and, you know, basically a regime change in Ukraine and uh, pretty much uh, eliminate any possibility of NATO or United States uh, doing provocations from that territory. So that's the whole situation. And do not forget, the number of the refugees to Russia from Donbass republics is huge. And uh, it started to grow uh, in mid-February, uh, again, once the shelling started and Russia started to remove, I believe it was like 100, 150,000 people have been removed from the front lines because they were in danger. So that's that was it. And uh, it is basically a continuation of the uh, 2014, events of the 2014, but in other, so to speak, um, ways, it's continuation of the 1945. So then, had attacks on the LDNR escalated before the Russian attack, and were war crimes being committed? Yes, they were committed constantly, and uh, fact is, and we are facing now what was supposed to be done earlier, but it's finally being done because Russia is militarily in the Ukraine proper, so to speak, and already the information which is pouring in, literally, from biological weapons laboratories and collection of the Slavic DNA, especially Russian DNA, by the labs which are financed by Pentagon, and that 
literally torture chambers. I mean, you you won't believe what is being uncovered right now. And it is all over Russia. Uh, you can easily see it on the Russian TV and uh, on the briefings of the uh, Russian Ministry of Defense. And that's not going to be reported in the West because uh, there is a huge judicial issue behind that because war crimes and especially uh, the way they were committed, it's... Um, it's going to be something to discuss down the road when the uh, military operation will be over and the war crime tribunal, war crimes tribunal most likely will be set up either in Donetsk or maybe even in Moscow. And that's going to be very highly publicized event. The Maiden coup d'etat instigated by the U.S. and NATO that caused the overthrow of democratically elected Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych who favored an alliance with Russia rather than with NATO, took place in 2014, as you've mentioned. Why do you think Russia waited for eight years before intervening militarily? Um, Very simple. Um, Let me put it kind of like bullet points. First, Donbass republics, in some sense, they were an accident, okay? Russia wanted just Crimea, but when people who identified themselves as Russians rose up in arms, Russia had no choice but to start obviously protecting them. That's how the Minsk agreements appeared. And that is why, for example, Kremlin asked uh, when they held, don't forget, both republics held a referendum of joining Russia. They wanted their uh, Crimean scenario. Do not forget, Kremlin said, don't, don't do that. We will not recognize it. And the reason for that was extremely simple. And I was writing about this in my books now forever and uh, on my blog and talking to people. Russia of 2014 is not the Russia of 2022. Russia of 2022 is a very different country than it was before eight years ago. Economically, it grew tremendously. And uh, Russians, and they recognized it's not really secret. It's not something like plan within plan, which is hidden somewhere in the world. No, it's in the open. Everybody knows the war is with the West. The conflict is with the West. And uh, persevere and to have a chance at winning this conflict, Russia needed the time and really slick uh, political maneuvering. And that is why, for example, you got the you got Syria campaign in 2015. And then you can see yourself over the last eight years, it was uh, constant gaining of the economic and military prowess by Russia. And at this stage, Russia, especially now with the de facto existing military political alliance with China, decided to settle it once and for all. Because it was clear the uh, United States wanted Russia in Ukraine under any circumstances and for the uh, uh, reason of separating uh, uh, economically Europe from Russia. And the United States, it seems, well, it's only seems actually succeeded on that, but not quite. And now we can see what an impact and colossal impact it's having right now on the global economy, including on the United States itself. And that's what they couldn't calculate. 
It seems like Russia's military incursion into Ukraine is being carried out in a methodical and measured way. This is no shock and awe campaign, contrary to whatever the mainstream media is portraying. Would you agree, and what is the comparison with how the U.S. wages war? Immediately, we need to understand, and Putin, for example, President Putin is on record. Of course, he has to say it. He's talking about that Russian and Ukrainians are brotherly people. Well, Eastern Ukrainians and Russians, yeah, they have a lot in common. Definitely not Western Ukraine. But whatever it is, uh, I would disagree that there is no shock and awe. In fact, this operation will be started now as a classic campaign, unprecedented both in trying to preserve civilians and reduce civilian uh, deaths to their possible minimum. Yet, in the same time, uh, since yesterday, uh, especially after Russian Ministry of Defense released the data, yeah, we're looking at basically annihilation of the uh, Ukrainian armed forces and those nationalistic Nazi battalions. Pretty much, some people say it's 75%, others say it's 85%, but basically Ukrainian armed forces do not exist anymore. And now the mopping up part starts, and that's the most difficult one, because such as people in city of Mariupol or in Kharkov, civilians are being held hostage by the nationalistic or Nazi battalions and not allowed even to leave uh, through humanitarian corridors. And that that what limits uh, Russian uh, use of the heavier weaponry. So that's going to be basically, you know, uh, some sort of the clinical operation and, you know, to minimize the civilians' uh, losses. This is definitely different from what United States got used to doing, basically blowing stuff, you know, to the left and to the right. And we should know, remember that Iraq alone, numbers vary. Some people put the number of deaths of civilians or civilian losses in Iraq somewhere between 250 to 650,000. But under any circumstances, we are talking about hundreds of thousands of people killed. At this stage, Russia primarily, in what I would describe as shock and awe, destroyed primarily military infrastructure of the Ukrainian forces. And now, uh, uh, Russian armed forces are in investing, so to speak, the cities where the uh, primarily nationalist battalions and brigades are holding out. So that's the huge difference. Russians will try their utmost to save civilians. I'm speaking with military analyst and author Andrei Martinov. Today's show, War in Ukraine. Geopolitical and Economic Fallout. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What are all of the fighting forces now engaged in Ukraine? Obviously, there are Russian Federation military, uh, militia from the two regions of the Donbass, there are mercenaries, and then Ukrainian military proper. What are the Azov forces? Well, uh, Azov and uh, Aidar and that kind of what they call battalions, they're not really battalions, they're more like brigade-sized forces. They, it varies, you know, it's very difficult to really keep a track on how many people are in them. These are ultra-nationalistic 
mostly Western Ukrainian, many of them outright Nazis. And these are the forces which are most fanatical. And they are, by the way, also the force which uh, keeps some uh, armed forces of Ukraine from completely surrendering. They literally, they are those detachments which shoot you on spot if you even think about surrendering or, you know, even talking to Russians. And LDNR uh, militia, which is now pretty much part of the Russian operation, you know, as the attached force. So these are dangerous people. They are responsible primarily for both uh, uh, ideological and propaganda warfare. And they are the ones who primarily commit a lot of atrocities. Uh, there are many facts already, and the White Book is coming very soon, of the, well, execution of civilians. They're shooting at people who try to get out of uh, surrounded cities through humanitarian corridors. It is all well documented. It's basically type of SS type organization, even probably worse, you know. So that's what they do. And obviously they know that once the cities such as Mariupol are surrounded, they are not going to be treated as Ukrainian regular armed forces. Those people will be treated as the war criminal and uh, probably they will be treated or judged in Donetsk where there is a death sentence. And many of them will end up executed after conviction for the war crimes and atrocities. So that is why they are also fanatically trying to fight because they know they have no way to survive this. And there are many things on which they will be indicted. Well, what is the relationship between the Azov forces that you've been describing and the regular uh, Ukrainian military? I mean, the Ukraine government must be tolerating these Azov forces. What is the relationship? Oh, Ukraine government doesn't tolerate them. Ukraine government doesn't control them. And uh, this all starts a very long time ago by the CIA asset, Mr. Nalivaychenko, who was the chief of the SBU, the security service of Ukraine. And he was the guy who was creating in the Western Ukraine all those camps and CIA was pouring advisors and money into preparing those battalions and brigades, however you want to describe it. They have definitely a larger number of people or personnel than mere battalion. So these are the people who were trained to do that. And basically no government, starting from once the Yanukovych overthrow, uh, had full control of those. And uh, they are also controlled partially by the uh, Minister of Internal Affairs, Mr. Alakov. And this a parallel structure. In fact, I don't know if you heard about it, but it was well, well represented in the news. A few days ago, actually, armed forces of Ukraine whose general have been assaulted and I believe was killed, they actually uh, struck one of the Azov's uh, installations by the Tochka U, which is the uh, tactical ballistic missile, killing a number of those people. So it's uh, Ukraine is not normally governed entity anymore. Well, it never was to start with, but now it's completely ungovernable. And basically the whole campaign now is held together by those uber-nationalistic elements, and uh, that's what uh, they are doing now. They dug in in Kharkov, in uh, Mariupol, they uh, basically literally mining their sandboxes and uh, kindergartens. 
again, as I said, once this white book and once those uh, war crimes and atrocities will be not revealed, they are already revealed, there are a lot already is known and documented, but once they will be presented to the world in the well-organized manner through the war crimes tribunal, there will be a lot of talk about the role West played in all that, and it played a very proactive role especially people from Obama administration and, you know, nowadays Biden administration. And uh, there there will be issues of the human rights and all kinds of stuff like that. So that's who they are. That's how they are trained. And, uh, well, when they have the chance, obviously, they try to run because they don't want to face a regular uh, Russian army or militias. And militias, uh, which are now kind of, as I already stated, it's attached force now. They have their own scores to settle with them. Now, I've read that the CIA had ceded the Ukraine with like some sort of stay-behinds from World War II. Yep. Uh, would some of these uh, forces be part of the Azov forces? Yeah, not only Azov, there are all kinds of them, IDAR and, you know, just name it. I don't even remember all of them, but there are many of those so-called battalions. And yes, these are actually there are also forces, which effectively, if you look at how it, uh, this whole situation unfolded for the last eight years, they are people who would be roughly equal to the commissars. But, I mean, with much broader capabilities and sense, they, they could kill and execute just, you know, Ukrainian armed forces officers or uh, enlisted people just on the pure suspicion of, say, treason, quote-unquote, or that they talk to Russians. So, yes, these are primarily Western assets, and not only just CIA, there is a lot of involvement of Germany there and Poland. So, yeah, it's a NATO kind of, you know, force. Humanitarian corridors have been opened by Russia in major cities in the Ukraine, but citizens are not allowed to use them. Who is preventing the citizens from fleeing? Precisely these people we just discussed. It is well-known fact. Just in Mariupol, people who have been able to break out, some of them have been shot at. You can look it up. It's all available. It's all on YouTube. And uh, so it's not uh, anymore some kind of hearsay. It's, as I already stated, it's well documented, including the uh, basically killing or murdering of people who try to uh, escape. So uh, people are not allowed. And even today, uh, some people who broke out uh, of Mariupol, they say people sitting mostly in the cellars and uh, basements and some people right on their houses. Children, there, there are children in this house. Well, guess what? They shouldn't have done it. They shouldn't have written it because this is precisely where they come in, create uh, some kind of the encampment and put their weapons in the houses. Well, that's how they are. You can look up today even Russian television from some of the uh, liberated settlements, towns and villages. You will see they cut trenches and uh, literally, literally next to the houses of people. You will shield all over the place. It is complete atrocity, and this is a war crime. And this is what American mass media do not want to report because they are baiting them. They are supporting terrorists, basically. That's what is happening. 
You have written that the armaments sent into Ukraine by Washington would mainly be useful in protracted guerrilla warfare, i.e., a, quote, second Afghanistan for Russians, but that this is delusional and that such a war will not take place. Could you explain? Yeah, I can explain. And uh, again, the explanation is quite simple. Washington and whoever runs it today, we don't even know that. Those people, they think in cliches and ignorant cliches. They grab something from history and think that you can apply it to the present situation. That shows you a very bad uh, level of education. But truth is, uh, Russians are not there to occupy Ukraine. Russians are there not to occupy Ukraine. It's literally what Putin stated, demilitarization and denazification. And demilitarization is basically dismantling the Kyiv regime military machine, which is, in a sense, the proxy Western military machine. And that is what Russia is doing. Once this is demolished, the Ukraine will be reconstituted. And it will remain the independent country, but it will be friendly. And there will be forces, most likely, which will be again reconstituted. I mean, Ukrainian forces, which will deal with the issues of the counterinsurgency and guerrilla warfare. And Russia certainly can supply enough weapons and military capability to deal with that. Russians will not be doing this. Ukrainians will be cleaning up their country, after all. So that's the plan, and Russians are not going to stay there for long. You have written that Washington yet again fails to understand the nature of the war and how it is prosecuted. What is it that Washington doesn't get? Uh, first, uh, first, the thing which Washington doesn't get is the fact that it has no good intel. Uh, America's strategic intelligence is really, really of low quality. Part of it, and of course, then there is the, the situation where the uh, uh, Washington is literally non-governable, and you have different uh, cliques and groups with all kinds of uh, their vested interests, which sometimes are contradicting each other. And as a result, apart from extremely low educational level of those people, many of those people are just uncultured. They have all those degrees from Ivy League schools, but they are not really literate people. And then you have them trying to make some conclusions. Guess what? They don't even know Russia. They don't understand Russia. And that's my uh, long year standing uh, position that Russian studies field in the United States is virtually, uh, you know, non-existent. It's some kind of the delusional uh, collection of uh, funny facts, and that's it. You cannot uh, make proper conclusions based on what they have. How would you characterize the comparison between the uh, Russian and U.S. military forces, their capabilities? I know that you've written two books on these subjects, but at this point, how would you compare the two? The Russians have more advanced military equipment, don't they? Well, yes. Uh, You have to remember that some of their military uh, items the United States is not capable to produce anymore. For example, the United States cannot design and produce modern tank. Everything you see is primarily the uh, you know variations of the Abrams type. 
United States lags now by generation in the air defense systems. And we can go into the hypersonics, which United States doesn't have, especially anti-shipping missiles of, things of this, this nature. The point is that United States force is designed as the power projection force. It is imperial force. It is the force which primarily does expeditionary warfare and primarily does it against their weak countries. Russian force is totally built around defending Russian, Russia proper and its uh, geographic vicinity. And as such, it is extremely efficient. And uh, you can listen to Colonel Wilkerson, for example, talking to some of his uh, interviewers. I don't remember, about months or two ago, I left the link to his video. And he says that in the first week of hypothetical, God forbids us to go there, conventional conflict between United States Army and NATO and Russia, there are probably first week casualties of uh, NATO will be 40,000 killed. United States never experienced that kind of warfare in its history. I'm speaking with military analyst and author Andrei Martinov. Today's show, War in Ukraine, Geopolitical and Economic Fallout. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, are you also saying that because most of American manufacturing capability has been shipped overseas, mainly to China, that that's affected the military production here in the U.S.? Yes, oh, absolutely. And again, you don't have to quote me on that. You can easily look at 2018 report to President Trump on the security of the American industrial base. It's widely available in the internet. And then the recent uh, report by NDIA, National Defense Industries Association, it is a disaster. And this is 2022 uh, document. It is basically catastrophe, industrial catastrophe. There are some things which United States cannot produce anymore, you know, and they try to, you know, cover it with, the, uh, you know, those fluffy uh, stocks and capitalization, all those useless uh, monetary indices. But reality is that uh, uh, technologically, the United States is beginning to fall back, um, especially in the military field, behind China and Russia. And uh, it has a lot to do, if not everything, a lot with the degradation of the manufacturing capability. And yes, uh, it, it is what it is. I mean, the United States of 2022 is not even the United States of 1999 or 2005. It is a thoroughly deindustrialized nation. It's very shocking. Has the U.S. grabbed Russian assets? And what is the likelihood that the Russian Federation will nationalize Western assets? Um, well, the United States already had this issue with the Russian uh, embassies and consulates, I believe, already during Trump administration. But uh, there is no doubt that uh, there will be tit for tat and whatever United States or the combined West do, uh, Russians will basically respond symmetrically or asymmetrically. But yeah, they can do that even, you know, nationalization. And as of today, Russian state Duma has the proposal from the United Russia, it's the ruling party, for the legislature of the nationalization of the assets of the companies which left Russia, you know, so 
hey, I mean, two can play the game. That's simple as that. That's the whole thing. That's what really I cannot even grasp. I cannot even, uh, you know, wrap my brain around that they thought that this wouldn't happen. But evidently, people in Washington, they didn't think about it. They literally cannot calculate. They cannot plan their, uh, basically anything beyond their, uh, I don't know, two, three weeks events. Well, that's why the uh, title of my uh, first book is uh, Losing Military uh, Supremacy, Myopia of American Strategic Planning. Evidently, there is no planning at all. Wow. What is the effect of war in Ukraine on Europe? particularly Germany. Um, today, Olaf Scholz, the chancellor, the guy is evidently not thinking very clearly in his cabinet, but Germans were committing uh, suicide already for a while now. Uh, Germany is pretty much uh, dead in the water. Olaf Scholz stated today that he cannot uh, allow Germany not to use Russian energy but as I already stated, Nord Stream 2, which was part of the uh, uh, objective for the United States to shut it down, Nord Stream 2, for all intents and purposes, is dead. And that, uh, in the short to middle term, means the death of Germany's uh, chemical industry and then, of course, the manufacturing, which is extremely energy inefficient. If you look at uh, the price of energy in Germany, it's highest in Europe. I believe it's second highest in the world, actually. And uh, it's simply unsustainable. So German economy is basically in the, uh, how to put it, in the agony, and things will get much worse. And now that we have the gasoline prices shooting through the roof, including in the United States, and that they will continue to uh, grow. So this is the killer uh, black swan event, so to speak. And can we expect $7 a gallon gasoline? Absolutely. I think that's coming, and that's probably not going to stop. And that, as you might understand, means the complete paralysis of economy, and the uh, United States at least has some resources. Europe doesn't have any energy resources, but it already committed suicide pretty much anyway. So it's uh, just the way it is. So since Germany suspended the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline from Russia, is this due to the U.S. sanctions against Russia? And what will be the consequences to Germany? Yeah, as I said, yeah, Germans just, I mean, uh, Germany is the United States poodle. And if Merkel administration was trying to kind of maneuver this Scholz guy, I mean, he is uh, completely U.S. stooge. And if you look at the uh, basically radicals who are in the German government today, including the uh, foreign minister, those are not normal people, really, I mean, in terms of understanding how the world works. And yes, as I said, Nord Stream 2 is dead. And guess what? It means pretty much the prolonged agonizing death of, of German economy, especially Germany manufacturing, which is extremely energy inefficient. So the costs, uh, energy costs in Germany are horrendous. That is why they are not really, uh, especially with the Germany's uh, export-oriented economy, they are not really competitive once their energy hits their, you know, uh, prices, which we have today. Well, is that because Germany went to uh, solar panels and windmills? Oh, and yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, green energy... 
they basically killed all their nuclear energy um, industry. So do not forget who those people are. They are lawyers, they are journalists, they are what have you. They don't have the industrial and physics based on education. They do not understand issues of the energy. They are activists. They are community organizers. So those people are utterly unqualified. And now you have the obviously United States, which obviously prepares much of, let's say, Germany and European elites in especially uh, American universities and Ivy League schools, you know, and uh, there you go. You have people who go into the 22nd century civilization and nation states, which have to be operated on a completely different basis than they have been taught. And they think, oh, yeah, let's go and, uh, you know, do the transition to green energy. Guess what? They don't even understand the issue of the grid. They don't understand the issue of the storing energy. You need to have the engineering background and, you know, fundamental science background to understand this. But that's not who they are. And then you have, of course, political uh, interest groups. You have all those lobbies and voila, suddenly you have what you have. And hey, uh, Germany wanted it, you know, so they have to kind of, you know, face the music. Well, now, could we consider Germany an occupied country ever since World War II? Maybe they don't have any say in their own country. Um. Well, there is a school of thought which thinks that Germany is occupied. Yeah, it's partially true. But there are many genuine articles on the German side. Let's also not, uh, you know, I always on record here, okay, there are many things which are really bad about the United States. And the United States wants the, you know, basically submission of the European uh, Union to to itself. But uh, there are many genuine articles there. I mean, any nation which consistently votes in a radical, lefty, culturally suicidal party as Greens, I mean, you have to ask questions, you know? It's not just the United States. They are like this, you know? Mm -hmm. The U.S. has locked the Russian Federation out of the SWIFT system, the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication, which executes financial transactions between banks worldwide. This move will have profound effects globally. What will be some of the fallout from Russia being locked out of this system? Oh, it's already having it. Look at the uh, basically financial markets today, and it's just accelerates the de-dollarization of the global economy, which was happening already for a while. And uh, for Russia, it really doesn't matter. Russia has its own analog, and Russia is also, you know, using the, between Russia and China, they're using that system. And uh, so in this particular case, I mean, it's just another nail in the coffin of dollar supremacy, just to illustrate to you. Two days ago, uh, Mr. Modi, the prime minister of India, which, by the way, India is also under the threat of sanctions by the United States, but India radically refused to impose any sanctions. Uh, actually, they, they speak, the Russian and Indian counterparts, they speak, and it's in the news, it's all over the place. Indians say, you know what, how about we now go to uh, trade mostly in rubles and rupees? There you go, you know. It's like, as I already stated, I never encountered in my life such uh, energetic suicide by the civilization. 
what the United States is doing right now is basically killing itself. It's killing the, the only thing which United States has left, which gave it to a degree of the advantage, dollar as the reserve currency. Because reserve currency allowed to do for to United States what it was doing for a long time now, and it's providing its main export. Main export of the United States are not Boeing planes, are not cars or anything else. The main export for the United States is inflation. This is why the inflation was basically squeezed out around the world. But uh, once uh, the world started to say, hey, enough of that, guess what? We have the situation which we have today. And yeah, uh, even today, somebody, I believe in the Wall Street Journal, there was the headline. You can look it up. It's on Yahoo News, Financial News, that Wall Street is completely confused what is going on. Of course they are. They do not operate with the real economy. They operate with those, you know, ephemeral uh, kind of virtual reality money and things of this nature. They don't understand how real world works. And SWIFT, hey, I mean, okay, Russia is, you know, is excluded from SWIFT. Guess what? The rest of the world makes their own conclusions after that. It has been reported that Visa and MasterCard have suspended operations in Russia after PayPal, Zara, and Samsung shut down services in the country. I just read that Russian banks are switching to a Chinese card system after Visa and MasterCard suspended operations in Russia. Now, what is the effect going to be of all of this? Well, not much. Again, Union Pay has been uh, around in Russia for a while now. Union Pay is this Chinese system. Plus, Russia has its own internal mirror system. So, I mean, yeah, you're just not going to get uh, things used uh, by MasterCard and Visa there. So, But there are many other instruments. And believe me, it's surprising for many people uh, because, of course, they get their news from Russia from designated sources which tell what... Uh, you know, the other side wants to hear. But the reality is, it doesn't matter, you know. So Russians know we're not traveling now for a while, you know, somewhere, you know, like in the West. But uh, Mir and Union Pay are good enough to uh, do the internal credit card transactions and even travel to such country where Russians love to travel. They love to travel and uh, uh, take vacation in Turkey, for example. So, yeah, that is fine. It's uh, maybe some minor inconvenience, but for the majority of Russians, it doesn't matter that much. I'm speaking with military analyst and author Andrei Martinov. Today's show, War in Ukraine, Geopolitical and Economic Fallout. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, it doesn't sound like it's going to pay off for Visa or MasterCard. Oh, no, they are. (laughs) You have to understand the reputational risks, which nobody talks about. It's like, yeah, let's switch it from the SWIFT. Ah, okay. The rest of the world makes a note after that. If they do it to them, they can do it to us, too. And guess what? The movement starts in towards the de-dollarization and using alternative uh, financial instruments. And this movement is already in progress, and it, it accelerates. Pe- many people didn't recognize, but actually, Bolsonaro, the you know president of Brazil, just listened to his speech in Moscow a couple of weeks ago. It's stunning, really. And the guy was considered the American stooge. 
That's interesting. What did Bolsonaro yeah. have to say in Russia? Oh my goodness! Uh, he was using such an emotional statement about uh, Brazil and Russia being almost, you know, I exaggerate a little bit, of course, but brotherly nations, and that Brazil will never harm Russia and will never, you know, uh, impose any sanctions, and that the friendship, all that stuff, you know, it was stunning, honestly. So the guy literally just switched the positions, and guess what? Brazil obviously is the part of BRICS. And yes, so, but don't forget, Brazil also is the one of the major recipients of the fertilizers from Russia and Belarus. And fertilizers is a strategic uh, resource. It's what creates food. But again, Wall Street doesn't understand that, you know, so people need to eat, you know. Well, commodity prices are skyrocketing, particularly mm -hmm. wheat and oil. You've written that Russia is the world's largest wheat exporter. Is Russia shutting down its exports to the U.S.? Uh, well, U.S. wants to shut down imports from Russia, but Russia can shut down. Yeah, Russia already imposing some limitations on the wheat. And uh, United States now wants to, I believe the legislature now is in the U.S. Congress. They probably will pass it to just reject any oil imports from Russia. And that's fine, you know, so it's just, again, what has to be understood. Russia was preparing for this for many years now. It's all ready. It was all the lower, uh, you know, high start position already. But again, uh, strategic planning in Russia is excellent. In the United States and in the West, virtually non-existent. So, I mean, I don't think so. People who do that, they, uh, they really plan on anything. It's all New York and it's all for PR and for the next election cycle. That's all. You write that Russian President Vladimir Putin enacted a law that makes the deliberate spread of disinformation punishable by up to 15 years in prison, and that the BBC, CNN, and Bloomberg have subsequently suspended operations in Russia. So what is this all going to lead to? Again, uh, going back to... Sergei Lavrov, I believe, last uh, last year, on one of his press conferences, Sergei Lavrov was asked a question by CNN or MSNBC. I don't remember who it was. Uh, his answer was very simple. I'm not going to answer to you. Just write whatever you want to invent because you're going to lie anyway. And that was his response. I almost quoted it. So, I mean, yeah, they left. I wrote this for years now. Uh, what's the point of keeping their uh, morons in, in Moscow, St. Petersburg, or whatever, in Russia? They can sit in Washington, D.C. or New York, you know, in the office of New York Times, and completely invent stories. When you read U.S. mainstream media or Western mainstream media, I mean, it's all delusion and lies, basically. So 90% of it is just lies. And so, yeah, they left big deal, you know, to, they can create whatever they want, you know, sitting in their offices. Well, I was just about to ask you how you would describe the Western mainstream media coverage of this war in Ukraine. It's not a coverage. It's a propaganda war. Most of it is based on the Ukrainian sources, which are basically also propaganda. And uh, there is nothing to talk about, really. It's uh, bar some few exceptions here and there, like 
Douglas McGregor or Scott Ritter, uh, most of it is just absolutely, it's ridiculous. It's preposterous. Well, that's right. I mean, I keep reading that the Russians are losing the war and that they're running out of armament and soldiers. It's, it's so opposite of what's going on. Yeah, I know. Again, listen, let's just be plain simple. For four years, United States mainstream media were telling people that Donald Trump was Russian stooge, okay? And he was a Russian KGB or FSB asset. I mean, what do you need to prove any, anything anymore? Those people, they just don't have any morals or integrity, professional integrity. They are mostly propaganda machine. Some of it, most of it anyway, is the propaganda machine by Democratic National Committee. Uh, the other is just, you know, so-called nominal conservative, which is pretty much, United States It has a uni party. And America's, what it's called, foreign policy uh, establishment and foreign policy consensus is what actually helped dramatically to bankrupt the country, utterly. And yeah, what are those journalists? They don't know anything. But the thing of it is, this mainstream media has so saturated everything that unless you're hooked into alternative media, you're just surrounded with it all. Yeah, absolutely. That's what propaganda is. They basically manipulate it. It's nonstop, continuous two-minute hates from... It's overwhelming reality. It's basically they create alternative reality. And many people, some people actually cannot deal with this. You know, that is why we have a issue, serious mental epidemic proportions of the mental illnesses in the United States, people having cognitive dissonances. It's a horrendous stress on people's, you know, psyche. And yeah, that's what they do. They lie all the time. Now, it looks like China, Turkey, and India are not going along with sanctions on Russia, are they? No, they're not. China already stated, you know, just don't even think about it. You know, Russia is our closest friend and forget it. India, obviously, same. Turkey, yeah. Erdogan, yesterday, yeah. We're not imposing sanctions. So, yeah, there are a number of countries, and when you look at the size of those countries, you have pretty much majority of the world population not willing to sanction Russia. Right. Now, isn't there also talk of France uh, not joining the sanctions? Oh, gosh, it's, uh, it's uh, France is being France. Yeah, they told uh, their companies to pause withdrawing from Russia. Do not forget, we shouldn't forget, there are also internal frictions within the Western camp. And the way things going, French probably surmise that, uh, you know what, we don't want a Germany really to become a dominant. French are afraid somewhat of Germany. But then, of course, once Germany is being right now kicked out of the Russian market, and it's a very large market. If you look at Russia and Belarus alone together, we're looking at 160 million people. Okay, this is significant. And French suddenly like, okay, why don't we indeed pause and see which niches freed by, the, uh, by Germans, which are being kicked out of Russia, we can take. You know, they might uh, find some interesting opportunities there eventually. Russians are not necessarily against cooperation, but, I mean, this now tit for tat. But if French decided to go soft, Russia will go soft. Very simple. Simple as that. 
Russia will negotiate with the devil himself if it, you know, makes sense. So that's how it works. Well, now with Germany canceling Nord Stream 2 for natural uh, gas from Russia, is that then going to mean that they're going to be forced to buy natural gas from the United States? Oh, that's the idea. Yes, that was the idea from the get-go. It was about the United States selling the uh, liquid natural gas, which either the United States liquefies itself, or which is Russian liquid natural gas, which the uh, United States buys at the spot and resells it to Germany. That's the whole idea. So, you know, the uh, whole plan from the American part, and I am on record in my videos on the YouTube, and I'm writing all this all the time, in pure cynical terms, in pure cynical Sometimes people say it's realist. Well, it's not quite realist, but cynical terms. It is, you die today for me to die tomorrow, for me to get another day of life. And yeah, that's what it is. So just to remove Germany from this uh, affordable energy, make sure its export-oriented economy industries are not competitive. Bang, you have the opening, you can get into it. You know, and there you go. And that's the plan. And, you know, it, it would have worked but the problem, of course, it's also the plan which incurs huge diminishing returns and very fast. And second, the United States now itself is suffering from pretty much the, you know, uh, situation. Nobody counted on that, of course, there. So it looks now like the world really is splitting into two separate camps. I mean, this is monumental. How do you see the near-term future panning out, uh, both in the Ukraine, but then globally? Um, Ukraine, as I already stated, uh, will be reconstituted as the new state, either neutral or friendly to Russia. And, of course, every, every effort will be made to keep the NATO forces and guerrillas you know, out. And even Western Ukraine could be sacrificed in this case because... Obviously, there is a Bukovina, and Romanians have their designs on that. Hungarian uh, minority in Western Ukraine already asked Viktor Orban to take them in, and Hungarian army is now on the borders. And, of course, there is always the issue of Lvov, which used to be called Lambert, and it's a Polish city. So, yeah, if Eastern Europeans decide to deal with that, sure. But globally, we have to understand that there is a Eurasian landmass, and Eurasian landmass economy is colossal. It dwarfs even the United States and uh, you know uh, Europe combined. It also dwarfs in terms of population. I've been on record and wrote so much about it. So that uh, basically what is happening right now, we have the Eurasia emerging as the main both economic and military driver in the world, and the West being pushed on the fringes. And once this happens, and this is in progress right now, it's happening right now as we speak, uh, United States will be pretty much relegated to the important, still probably global, but much reduced uh, power, or probably even the hugely important regional power, while the main uh, development, economic, scientific, cultural will be happening in the Eurasian mass. Europe is already now, the way it shapes to be, is merely the peninsula, you know, attached to the 
uh, Eurasian mass. That's it. So, and yeah, just count yourself. One and a half billion Chinese, 1.3 billion Indians. Russia commands all market together with its former Soviet Union republics, which we're looking at about 200 million people. And once you begin to count, and now, by the way, another friendly country to Russia, Pakistan, we're looking at 200 million people. You look at Iran, and what do you have? You have much more than half population of the world being basically uh, coalescing around uh, a single military and political and economic power of Russia-Chinese alliance. Andrei Marchinov, thank you. Oh, my pleasure being with you. I've been speaking with Andrei Martyanov. Today's show has been War in Ukraine, Geopolitical and Economic Fallout. Andrei Martyanov is an expert on Russian military and naval issues. He was born in Baku in the Soviet Union, graduated from the Kirov Naval Red Banner Academy, and served as an officer on the ships and staff position of the Soviet Coast Guard through 1990. He took part in the events in the Caucasus that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. In the mid-1990s, he moved to the United States, where he worked as the laboratory director in a commercial aerospace group. He is the author of Losing Military Supremacy, The Myopia of American Strategic Planning, The Real Revolution in Military Affairs, and his latest, Disintegration, Indicators of the Coming American Collapse. His books are available at ClarityPress.com. Visit his blog at SmoothieX12.blogspot.com. That's S-M-O-O-T-H-I-E-X-1-2.blogspot.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio. Release. You dig me?